one of the most aggravating and upsetting trends in cities, regions, and nations around the world is injustice. If you'll turn to Amos, the fifth chapter, Amos is a call to repentance in that fifth chapter. It also describes the day of the Lord. God indicts those who do not seek righteousness and justice. Amos 5 and verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. In other words, they were not practicing righteousness, but turning justice to wormwood. Then verse 12. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. And here's God's admonition. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. So the eternal God of hosts will be with you as he, you have spoken. Hate evil, love good. And we take, need to take that admonition personally. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. It may be that the eternal God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So again, that is God's admonition. He says, establish justice in the gate. But we have injustice in our world today. We have slavery. We can remember the acts of genocide that have taken place over the years. World War II, Nazi Germany, the estimates range from 11 million to 17 million in the Holocaust, depending on what counts as genocide. Victims were Jews, gypsies, Eastern Europeans, and occupied territories. And then even under Joseph Stalin, 1932 to 1933, as many as 8 million died through forced starvation of the Ukrainians as they were seen as enemies of Stalin. And when my wife and I visited the Ukraine back in 1984 with YOU students, we experienced that information. People in the Ukraine were still conscious of the historic genocide that they experienced. Cambodian genocide from 1975 to 1979. The Khmer Rouge killed about 2 million of their fellow Cambodians, and especially those that had Western education. And then you know about the Rwandan genocide, 1994, where as many as 1 million Tutsis killed were killed by the Hutus. And there's the Armenian Genocide, 1915 to 1918. Mr. D. Barpartian was one of the reasons of coming to, actually, Switzerland and then eventually the United States when his parents set him on a ship to avoid that genocide. The Ottoman Empire policies directly and indirectly killed up to 1.5 million Armenians through forced labor and relocation. And then the Darfur conflict, 2003 to 2010, where 400,000 were killed in Darfur region of the Sudan. So there are many other atrocities that have taken place over the world, 
And I just get upset about it. I pray your kingdom come. I hope you do too when you read the newspapers and you read about the tragedies that are going on even day to day. There's a tragedy in India where in the capital still city of Delhi, normally about 5,000 children go missing in the capital city every year. That's from the Daily Mail. They are stolen or sold into slavery. This is a headline, Misery of Delhi's Trafficked Children, as figures showed 5,000 go missing in the capital every year. Not only there, but also children are sold as slaves in West, West Africa. Uh, that's from ABC News uh, 60 Minutes, where Mike Shield traveled to West Africa to photograph the lives of children trafficked as slaves or forced into marriage. Some are sold for $30 each. And, of course, their parents think that is a huge amount of money for them. But even this is rather shocking, and this is from the observer. You go to the guardian.co.uk, and this is the headline from the Guardian, that India traffics, uh, targets the traffickers who sell children into slavery. I just talked about Delhi, but the rest of India, the figures are even more shocking. Up to 200,000 children a year fall into the hands of slave traders in India, many sold by their poverty-stricken parents for as little as 11 pounds. Now, a group of activists has set out to rescue them from a life in the sweatshops of Delhi. So these are tragedies and abominations that are taking place around the world. The world needs a solution to those problems. So what is that solution? That solution is God's coming government, and we are being trained for that coming kingdom, and we are going to be the kings, the priests, and the judges to right those wrongs. Even here in the United States, there is injustice in our courts. The Benjamin N. Cardozo School of Law at Yeshiva University sponsors what is called the Innocence Project, which is one of the many volunteer groups around the nation looking into convictions and helping to bring about exoneration. From the innocentproject.org, here are some facts and figures. There have been 307 post-conviction DNA exonerations in the United States history. Eighteen people had been sentenced to death before DNA proved their innocence and led to their release. If you were on death row, if you were innocent, you'd be very thankful that someone intervened. Continuing with the statistics from the Innocent Project, the average sentence served by DNA exonerees has been 13.6 years. Exonerations have been won in 35 states in Washington, D.C. The leading cause of wrongful convictions are eyewitness misidentification testimony, unvalidated or improper forensic science, false confessions and incriminating statements, and informants. Let's turn back to Amos, the fifth chapter. The lesson from all of this is that there is false testimony, misjudging, and many cases of injustice here in the United States and around the world. 
And the question for us today is, do we ever misjudge? Would we give mistaken testimony that would lead to the incarceration of an innocent, innocent person? And do we sometimes mistakenly condemn people in our own hearts and minds? Amos 5, verse 15. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord eternal, eternal God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. But we look forward to that time when there will be justice in the world. Verse 24 is a wonderful scripture you want to mark in your Bible. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Don't we all pray and yearn for that, not only for our nation, but for all nations, where justice would run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the kingdom, in tomorrow's world, God's government will administer righteous judgment. And who will judge the nations, the cities, and the communities? Most of us are familiar with the astounding statement by the Apostle Paul. You turn back there to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, 1 Corinthians 6. We know that Christ will judge the nations, and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But we, brethren, will have responsibilities of assisting the King of Kings. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So he's making it very clear that the saints have a judgmental responsibility. Verse 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? We have a responsibility in the future. God has called us to be kings, priests, and judges. The title of the sermon today is Judges in Training. You know, a king also had a responsibility as a judge. I looked it up in the Anchor Bible Dictionary, Volume 3, page 11106, under Judging, and it cites 2 Samuel 8, verse 15. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read it to you. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all the people. So in today's sermon, we'll see examples of good judging and poor judging. We'll discuss principles for judging righteous judgment, and we'll consider when to judge and when not to judge. Uh, this is the second in a two-part series on judgment. The first series was given a few weeks ago, titled churches under judgment. Well, let's continue with judges in training, but let's first take a look at a sampling of our court systems and the so-called justice they render. And it's called crisis in the courts. Throughout history, governments, courts, and nations have rendered injustice. I won't turn there. I gave this example in a sermon some time ago, First Kings, the 21st chapter, you know the story of King Ahab and his neighbor Naboth, who had this wonderful vineyard, and Naboth asked, uh, asked Naboth uh, for the vineyard, and Naboth refused, and so he went solemnly and, like a spoiled kid, who just uh, was sad, but 
who was going to get the Naboth's vineyard for Aboth from for Ahab? Jezebel. Jezebel would get it for her. And so she set up false testimony to accuse Naboth of blasphemy, and they stoned Naboth to death. And, of course, King Ahab got Naboth's vineyard because of Jezebel. Injustice. And then there is the unjust judge Jesus gave as a parable of the importunate widow in Luke, the 18th chapter. So even in Jesus' day, he referred to an unjust judge. And then we know Christ's own experience of the injustice that he received being crucified when all of the people said, crucify him, crucify him. And the Roman governor, Pilate, acceded to the people, and Jesus was unjustly crucified, but willing, of course, to sacrifice his life to shed his blood for the sins of the world and for our sins individually. Some years ago, I was shocked by reading this book. I found it in our Living University Library, uh, Crisis in the Courts. Uh, It's by uh, James, good name almost. But uh, he writes in the beginning of the book, Judging the Judges, chapter 1, page 1. It is 11.43 on a Wednesday in late February. Spring is edging into Louisville, Kentucky, and on the street people have shed their coats and are nodding and smiling. But in the courtroom, Circuit Judge R, there are no smiles. A middle-aged barber accused of wounding a man is worried. His freedom and future are at stake. On the witness stand, his daughter, an attractive woman, tells the jury how the victim provoked the shooting by taunting her father and by getting youngsters to block the barbershop driveway with their bicycles to keep customers away. As she's testifying, an aging newsboy enters the courtroom and hawks papers. A little distraction here and there. With considerable rustling, Judge R. opens his newspaper to the comic page. After reading for several minutes, he pulls the section out, folds it into a smaller square, and counts quietly to himself, apparently working the crossword puzzle. During the testimony, the young woman seems nervous. She speaks rapidly. Judge R. looks up from his paper and tells her to slow down. There is a note of irritation in his voice when a few minutes later, he again orders her to speak more slowly so this court stenographer can keep up. The stenographer, who already has put down her pen and is checking her fingernails, says, Oh, I gave up a long time ago. When the defendant's daughter finishes, two other witnesses take the stand briefly. Judge R. denies the prosecution request to let the woman use the chalkboard to clarify her testimony. And then at 12.38, the judge adjourns the court for lunch until 2 p.m. What happened on this day in Louisville is un- is is unusual, but it is far from unique in the nation's state courts. In criminal court in Manhattan, a judge read read his newspaper-sized law bulletin while holding hearings. Lowering a corner to listen now and then, he kept the paper in front of his face as defendants appeared before him. To those involved, each case was an important matter worthy of his full attention. In Cincinnati, a new common pleas magistrate, Judge Kay, was reading, ironically enough, copies of the Journal of the American Judicature Society during a narcotics trial. So, again, what is happening here are just samples and examples 
of judges who weren't even paying attention to the testimony in their court. You think, well, that's not too much of a problem. But the author of the book here, Howard James, cites a survey that he did to show that there were more than 15,000 men and women presiding over lower courts, and at least 10,000 of those 15 are non-lawyers. If my sampling is a fair indication, writes James, I simply sat down in the courtroom, selected at random around the country, and listened. Perhaps half, perhaps half of the trial judges are, for one reason or another, unfit to sit on the bench. Now I think, well, that's just one man's opinion. However, the foreword to this book, Crisis in the Courts, by Howard James, and this was back in 1968, when I first read it, but the Ford is by Earl F. Morris, president of the American Bar Association. And he says, this book deals with a wide variety of problems. It is important to recognize that if we are to resolve these problems, all citizens, not just lawyers and judges, must work together. And we must also remember that the struggle is for neither the faint-hearted nor the short-winded. So, well, that was 1968. Well, I went on a line and uh, search for crisis in the courts and found that, yes, there is an updated book called Crisis in Our Courts. That is a 1993 book, and uh, it has similar, similar conclusions. The summarization of the book is as follows, quote, This provocative and controversial book shows how justice is bought, pandered, and abused in today's court systems. The author, Steve Birch, a Seattle defense attorney, pulls no punches in his damaging commentary against personal injury lawyers, incompetent judges, stacked juries, and sue happy litigants. No, God is changing, is training us to be competent judges. And yet here are Thousands of incompetent judges. So it's sad to see what is going on in terms of those institutions that are to give stability to a country. Some of you are familiar with the Reader's Digest feature, That's Outrageous. I've read it over the years, and you find out all the pork barrel money that's wasted by politicians and government, uh, just extreme cases. But this list is for courtrooms. And that's from the Reader's Digest, that's outrageous. How does legal abuse become especially outrageous? Read on. A man illegally bought a gun, brought a gun into a bar, got injured in a fight, and then sued the bar for not searching him for a weapon. Another example. Kids sued their mother. These are actual court cases. Kids sued their mother for sending birthday cards without gifts. A woman disagreed with a store owner over an 80-cent refund and then sued for $5 million. A convict sued a couple he had kidnapped for not helping him evade police. Just outrageous, just insane. You think, you know, we need to pray as God gave us the spirit of love and of power and of what? A sound mind. And yet these are outrageous uh, injustices. A woman sued a theater over a movie trailer saying there wasn't enough driving 
in the move drive. A mom sued Chuck E. Cheese's, arguing that the restaurant's video games encourage gambling in children. Well, there are many flaws in our world justice season, but God has called us to judge the world, and we are judges in training. Let's take a look at our calling as judges in John, the seventh chapter. John 7, here we find a very powerful principle by Christ himself in judging. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. He was criticized for doing it on the Sabbath. John 7 and verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Verse 22, John 7. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And if there's one principle, brethren, we should get from the sermon today, it's that principle. You need to mark it in your Bible Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. We all need to practice that principle. Jesus' critics were not practicing righteous judgment, but do we sometimes make rash judgments? Do we sometimes make snap judgments? And I know I have in the past, and sometimes my wife might want to be telling something, and I interrupt her, and, "Uh uh-oh, that was a mistake. I should have listened to the rest of the story before I made my snap judgment. We make hundreds of judgments or decisions every day. According to one source, the average human makes about 612 decisions a day. You decide whether to turn left or turn right, or to go fast or to go slow, or what you might have for breakfast, or many other details throughout the day. This equals 4,900 decisions in a week, 254,800 in a year. We have an awesome responsibility to make right decisions and to judge righteous judgments. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter we read earlier. 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, and again, does it really sink into you that we have a calling to judge the world? We'll pick it up after that statement in verse 2, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If you then have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are at least esteemed by the church to judge? In other words, there should have been capable, competent, able individuals within the congregation to judge. And we, of course, as an advanced leadership training program, and Mr. League knows that we have many capable, competent men here that can judge. And, of course, women need to judge as well in their own families, in their own lives. I say this to your shame, is it not so that there is not a wise man? So what are the qualities of a good judge? A wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? That's part of our calling. It's a very important part of our calling. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
I was talking with uh, Dr. Mike Germano yesterday and talking about his experience in the law. He was a practicing lawyer in California, even when he was executive vice president of Ambassador College under Mr. Armstrong. And uh, he was relating some of the stories of good judges and bad judges. And it was just, just there are good judges and uh, some of the uh, bad judges. But it's just very fascinating. Uh, there's one story I, I'm tempted to tell you, but uh, you'll have to ask him. Very one in which the judge knew the uh, individuals that were before the judge. And uh, he said, you, I know that you are from the Worldwide Church of God. Anyway, I, I won't tell the rest of the story. You can ask uh, Dr. Germano about it. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? There have been experiences when I've had to counsel people. I remember one case years ago in which a church member had uh, painted had been contracted by another church family to paint their home, and there was a conflict. And uh, the, uh, I guess the homeowners felt that he did a substandard job. And anyway, had to uh, judge between them. And basically, working with both families, they came to an agreement that was amicable for both parties. They did not have to go to a, a law court outside of the church. So we have to, again, realize that God has set up judgments within the church. In fact, I may refer to it later, but uh, Dr. Meredith wrote an article years ago, Judging and Discipline in God's Church. Verse 8, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. So we need to consider ourselves, if we are peacemakers, that we may want to accept wrong from time to time. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And he goes on to say those who will not qualify for the kingdom of God. So God has called us to be quality, competent, able judges, to be able to judge even the smallest matters. So can you fathom the high calling that we've been given as judges in training, we need to exercise and judge righteous judgments. What is the purpose of judging? The Anchor Bible Dictionary, under the article Judging, states the following. This is volume 3, page 1105. Quote, The main task for which judges were appointed was to maintain harmonious relations among the Israelites. The judge made legal decisions in civil disputes, and gives several references, Judges 4-5, 1 Samuel 7-15. Most of the disputes were those which concerned the welfare of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. Psalm 82, Jeremiah 5-28, and so forth. In this function, the judges did not always pass a verdict which justified the plaintiff and condemned the defendant. In other words, they had to judge fairly. And remember, God is not a respecter of persons. I tried that, looked that up in the New King James, but in the King James Version, it's Acts 10, verse 34. God is not a respecter of persons. 
So we need to be careful in our judgments. Continuing with uh, the Anchor Bible Dictionary. The judges often acted as arbitrators, that is, restorers of salam, meaning probably shalom, peace, which prevailed before the onset of strife or hostilities. Genesis 16.5, Genesis 19.9. So yes, uh, we want to make sure that we are peacemakers. And as it said, the function was to give harmony to the nation and even to judge the widow and the poor and the fatherless. And that's what we read in James 1. What is pure religion? No, but to visit the fatherless and the poor. And that is part of pure religion. That is a part of the responsibility of a judge. They were to be peacemakers. And, of course, in New Testament times, we know Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Let's turn to Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Matthew, the 23rd chapter. When we see all of the injustices in the world, we realize the world needs good judges. We just saw in John, the seventh chapter, how Jesus' critics use one-sided standard for judgment. But here in Matthew 23, he continues with, that is, Jesus continues with his evaluation, his judgment of those who are judging him, the Pharisees. Matthew 23 Verse 1, And Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not according to their works, for they say, and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their little fingers, one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. That is obviously in a spiritual sense that uh, replaces God the Father. He tells us to honor our fathers and mothers, obviously, so there's no contradiction in the Scriptures. And verse 10, And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So they had two standards of living, Two standards, a double standard. They did what was uh, on the outside to bear burdens on others, but they would themselves not lift a finger, as Jesus said. So the final castigation of them is in verse 23, as you know. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected, what? The weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith, these ought you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So we need to read the whole chapter. They, we cannot live a double standard as the Pharisees did. They judged themselves as righteous by a standard we call legalism, 
We, as God's church, were called legalists because we kept the Ten Commandments. But that's not legalism. The kind of pharisaical legalism was an attempt to keep the law in the letter without applying the law in the spirit, which Jesus made very clear now here in verse 23, omitting the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. I mentioned earlier the uh, book, Crisis in the Courts. The author goes on to uh, list as his evaluation some of the problems of the uh, characteristics of the poor judges. And uh, if I can find that here, I may not come across it. Well, I'll come across it a little later here. But what are the qualities? One of the qualities or, say, characteristics of these poor judges was that they were lazy. They were incompetent. They were not even trained. I'll have to find that, that section a little later. But how can we be good judges? Matthew, the seventh chapter, you know, is a fundamental principle on judging. Matthew 7 and verse 1. Matthew, the seventh chapter. A little of Matthew seven, verse one. Judge not that you be not judged. For the Fenton translation has condemned not, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so, again, we have to be very careful about judging others. You know, children know the uh, the little uh, handshake that you point the finger at someone, and you got three fingers pointing back at you and the thumb pointing at God. So you have to be very careful when you accuse someone or judge someone. Just think about that. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? I, Sorry, I didn't bring it up. I was thinking ahead of time that I should bring up a big two-by-four, you know, and, and hold it up to my eye here. So you see, you got a big plank sticking out of your eye. It's rather incongruous to think, well, let me help you with that little speck in your eye. You've got this. You're not looking too good there, fellow. I want to help you with that speck in your eye. And here's this huge plank sticking out of your eye. I did that one time at a, a local church congregation. I had a long uh, limb from a, a, a branch from a tree, and it was probably about 10 feet long and held it out, but I won't do that today. But just, it, but it's an incongruous situation. You'd understand that if you're helping someone else, do I have the same problem? What measure are you using to make those judgments? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, verse 5, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So we again have to ask ourselves, what standards are we judging? And is it our responsibility to judge? There are times to judge and not to judge. And if we are having problems, as we pointed out in other sermons, with someone, a conflict, we need to apply 
the principle of Matthew 18.15. If your brother sins against you, go to him yourself and address the matter. Talk the matter out. And then if he doesn't hear you, you take a witness. And if he doesn't hear you and the witness, then you take it to the church for judgment. And that's happened very smoothly. It's God's way of doing it. We think of the examples in the Bible of good judges and good uh, servants of God. King Solomon, of course, was one. Let's turn back to 1 Kings, the third chapter, 1 Kings 3. 1 Kings, the third chapter. Remember when he prayed to God for a blessing, and God said, just ask whatever you want. And so 1 Kings, the third chapter, verse 8, what would you ask? God says, look, you ask me anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Verse 8, 1 Kings 3, Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous and too numbered or counted. Therefore give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. What are the characteristics of a good judge? To be discerning between good and evil. And so many of our young people today have been brought up in a tolerant society, a liberal society, and there are no absolutes for them. They've not been taught the Ten Commandments, as our children here in the congregation have been taught. And they don't know right from wrong. That I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Eternal that Solomon had asked this thing. Verse 11, 1 Kings 3. Then God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. As kings in training, brethren, we need to ask for discernment. Verse 12, Behold, I have done according to your word. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart. God will give us a wise and understanding hearts as we apply the commandments in our lives, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall anyone arise after you. And he goes on in verse 14. He promises them riches and honor. In verse 14, So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And then almost immediately we have this example of judgment. The two women, the harlots that came in, verse 16. You know the story, I won't go through the whole story, but one had uh, smothered one of their child, and the other one claimed the life the child was, was hers, and so Solomon had to make a judgment in the case. And so, verse 24, he says, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king. He said, divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O oh, my Lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. Verse 28, And all Israel heard the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So God gives qualities of good judgment to his leaders, 
We need to pray for that judgment. The Pharisees and other critics had a double standard, one for themselves and a different standard for others. And so their judgments were critical, warped, and unsound. But Jesus gave us the higher standard of justice, mercy, and faith. So what are some of the other qualities of good judges? We all know Jethro's advice, the father-in-law of Moses, back in Exodus, the 18th chapter. We'll see some of those qualities that he advised for judges of the land. Exodus, the 18th chapter. I won't go through the whole story. You know the rest of it, but just breaking into it on verse verse 21. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, able meaning competent individuals, trained, honest, such as fear God, men of truth. We have to obey the truth, love the truth, live by the truth, rejoice in the truth, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Hating covetousness, that's what this world is full of, greed and lust, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. And then the bigger matters, of course, they would bring up the line, and finally the, the most challenging ones would be brought to Moses. We still follow that example in God's church today. But note the qualities, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, and hating covetousness. Later in Israel's history, they did what was right in their own eyes. At times, God was merciful to them and raised up judges to deliver them from their enemies and to guide them back. The book of James covers roughly a 300-year history of Israel doing what? What was right in their own eyes. That's Judges 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you had the cycle of sin, of punishment from the other tribes and nations, and they're asking God for deliverance, and then God sends a judge or deliverer to guide the nation. And that was quite a period of time for them. As it says in the introduction to the New King James Bible, in Hebrew, the book is titled Sophetim, Shophetim, S-H-O-P-H-E-T-I-M, meaning judges, rulers, deliverers, or saviors. The Hebrew word Shopet not only carries the idea of maintaining justice and settling disputes, but it is also used to mean liberating and delivering. Those are the qualities for men and women that we've seen and they, God gave judges to Israel when they needed them. Of course, they did what was right in their own eyes, Judges 17.6 and 21.25, for a long period of time. And then, of course, we come into the monarchical period when Israel rejected Samuel and said, we want a king. God gave them King Saul. Then later, of course, King David came along. King David gave principles of leadership. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel 23, 2 Samuel, the 23rd chapter. <clears throat> These are King David's last words. 
2 Samuel 23 and verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Thus said David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Eternal spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. And this is the message to us. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining, by clear shining after rain. So we must remember that we are going to be judging the earth as kings and priests. And we need to have that fear of God and must be just. How can we else learn to be kings and priests and good judges? Well, of course, we need to submit to judgment in the church as God has structured it even today. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. And here we find that the Apostle Paul had judged the church. And that judgment resulted in their repentance, resulted in harmony for the church. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, starting with verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away. Verse 3, for indeed, as absent in the body but present in spirit, he was writing this letter, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. Now, obviously, the Apostle Paul had plenty of facts to make that judgment. I might mention in passing that uh, Dr. Germano was mentioning that the judicial system in the United States is based on facts. In other words, the testimony given by the plaintiffs, by the defendant, it must be certain rules of the court are based on fact. I asked him, well, isn't it true that in the United States, basically, the principle is that anyone brought to court is assumed innocent until proven guilty? Yes. But more in Europe, the court system is such. You are assumed guilty, and you must prove your innocence. So even in other parts of the world, it's worse than it is here. But the Apostle Paul had made that judgment. And what were the fruits of the Apostle Paul's judgment? Turn to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, 2 Corinthians 7. That uh, godly sorrow chapter is very instructive for each of us. Second Corinthians, the seventh chapter, and starting with verse 9. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. And he goes on to give the uh, qualities of godly sorrow. Verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing in yourselves, what indignation. And we need righteous indignation. We know, of course, it says in Ezekiel, um, 
9.4, that God is going to protect those who sigh and cry for the abominations that are committed. We have even in our spokesman club an attack speech. You attack evil, you attack sin, and you know why it's evil, why it's wrong, why it's injurious and abusive and harmful. Indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication in all things you prove yourself to be clear in this matter. So they abided by the judgment of the Apostle Paul and brought about harmony and unity within the church. Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, Deuteronomy 17, gives a warning for us as well in terms of government in God's church and, in, of course, back at that time in God's nation. Deuteronomy 17, and we'll start in verse 8. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, and you shall arise and go up to the place where the eternal your God chooses. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Eternal chooses. And you shall be careful to do all according to all, to do all according to all that they order you, according to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgment which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. Now the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the eternal your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and no longer act presumptuously. As judges in training, one of the experiences that will help us to be better judges is to submit to judgments now. And we've seen the experience through the church in Corinth in realizing we need to learn in real life to judge as we submit to judgments. I'll just read to you from uh, Judging and Discipline in God's Church by Roderick Meredith, Good News Magazine, August 1958, page 12. It is human nature to disagree with God. When the children of Israel rejected Samuel as their judge and leader, 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 through 9, God told Samuel, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Dr. Meredith writes, Be fearful, lest you reject God by rebelling against his called servants. God holds his ministers responsible for teaching you his word, for directing his church, and carrying out church discipline. By following God's way of church discipline and judgment, the church of God may go forward in peace and love and will be purged of all sin to be presented holy and without blemish to Christ at his coming. End of quote. So one of the ways we learn to judge is by submitting to God's judgment in his church. And I recommend, if you haven't heard Dr. Meredith's sermon, number 735, The Blessings of God's Government, that you do that. God will help all of us, judges in training, 
as we submit to the judgments administered in God's church. Uh, By the way, I do want to express appreciation to our headquarters legal department affairs, legal affairs department, um, who was working to establish churches and legal entities around the world. And currently, the church has 27 legal entities in 20 countries around the world. 27 legal entities in 20 countries around the world. So it's quite a bit of hard work our legal affairs department has done. I might mention that Romans 13, of course, gives us principles for relating to secular governments, and we should read, study, and understand Romans 13, and one of the principles of judging. There are those even that we've come across in the church who some on occasion say refuse to pay taxes, for example, and uh, not understanding Romans 13 and are not learning to be good judges. What are some of the other principles for judging? I asked one of our lady members here in Charlotte what advice she would give in judging righteous judgment. She immediately said, be fair. In other words, hear both sides of the story. One of our employees said in answer to the question, what are some of the important principles for being a good judge? She said, or he said, know the law and live by it. And one young lady answered my question this way, have mercy. So judges, she wants to have mercy and fear God, she said, and don't be a respecter of persons. Let's turn to James, the second chapter. So are you merciful in your judgments? Is that a part of your character and your thinking? James, the second chapter. Remember, love suffers long and is kind. That's 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. But James, the second chapter, gives this comment about judgment. James 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that is an element for good judgment. The other individual said to know the law and practice it or live by it. I won't turn there, but you are familiar with Deuteronomy, the 17th chapter, where the king was required to even write out in hand a copy of the law. So he was familiar with the law. We have to know the law and practice it, study the statutes and judgments. Dr. Meredith has spoken on that before. I might refer you to Exodus chapter 21, Exodus chapter 24, Leviticus 18 through 20, Leviticus 24 through 26. Those give you some of the statutes and the judgments. And, of course, if we're going to know the law and practice it, we know the Ten Commandments. We know the New Covenant, which is to write God's laws on our hearts and our minds, which is written there in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. Let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I know this has helped me in times when someone was uh, trying to use tricky arguments to... uh, deceive or to promote his or her agenda. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. 
So if you're meditating on God's commandments, you will have more wisdom, more judgment than your enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. So as we meditate on God's law, you are wiser than your enemies. You have more understanding than your teachers. And, of course, in high school, that doesn't mean that students uh, have more understanding in mathematics than their mathematics teacher, but they have more spiritual understanding in many cases than, of course, their secular teacher in high school. So number one is to know the law and practice the law is one of the principles for growing in quality of judgment. Number two is to get all the facts. You know, be fair, as we heard. Hear both sides of the story. Turn back to uh, Proverbs, the 18th chapter. Proverbs 18, and I know this is difficult because... Whoever comes to you with whatever promotion, story, accusation, or whatever statement he or she has, it sounds so plausible and you want to accept it without even thinking about is there another side to the story. Getting all the facts is a part of being a good judge. In fact, that's one of the speeches in the Spokesman Club, a get the facts speech. Proverbs 18 and verse 17. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. So you want to make sure that you withhold judgment. If there's a reason to get more facts and testimony and research, you need to withhold judgment. And if there's another side of the story, to try to get that part of the story. Recently I've been reading the autobiography, not the autobiography, but the biography of Abraham Lincoln written by Carl Sandburg. When I was in high school, Abraham Lincoln was my hero, and I read quite a bit about him. When we were at the feast in Copper Mountain in Colorado in 2006, we went to a used bookstore in Denver, and I bought the whole series by Carl Sandburg, six volumes on Abraham Lincoln. Amazing, the detail that Carl Sandburg spent in writing six volumes on the life of Abraham Lincoln. The first two volumes are the prairie years. The last four years of volumes are the war years. And so I was able to buy the uh, set at a discount and have it shipped back here in my home. By, by the way, Carl Sandburg's home is right up uh, north of us here. It's a National Historic Site in Flat Rock, North Carolina. Uh, some years ago, my wife and I, and uh, we had... Uh, uh, Mrs. Uh, Marjean Gregory, uh, tour of the home. It's worth it. It's uh, south of uh, Asheville if you're up that way. Well, Abraham Lincoln, as a boy, lived in uh, Little Pigeon Creek. I won't go through the whole story. Fascinating story. Carl Sandburg introduces the lesson referring to Abe's grandmother, Lucy Hanks. Lucy lived in the tough pioneering days of the early 1800s. Sandburg writes, quote, Back in the shadows of the years had lived the dark, strange woman, Lucy Hanks, with flame streaks in her. And the years had beaten on her head, and circumstances had squeezed at her heart and tried to smother her hopes. And she had lived to pick a man she wanted to marry and born him eight children, 
and brought them up to read and write in a time when few could read and still could uh, still about his mother and about this his mother. Let me see. Brought them up to read and write when few could read and still about his mother and his this mother and his mother. He could ask himself about what is called good and what is called bad and how they are crisscrossed in the human mesh. He, referring to Abraham Lincoln, could ask whether sinners are always as crooked as painted, whether people who call themselves good are half the time as straight as the way they tell it. The lesson here for Abraham Lincoln was, maybe he ought to go slow in any deep or fixed judgments about people. Did the ghost of his lovable mother or the phantom of his lovely grandmother seem to whisper something like that? In other words, he learned principles of judging from his mother and grandmother. Abraham Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln, died at age 36 when Abe was nine years old. And uh, Abe's father, Tom Lincoln, uh, married a widow who lived 100 miles away in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. Uh, It's a fascinating story. Uh, which would tie into Dr. Mara's sermon last week on the importance of family, but that's a story for another time. The major principle is here, again, withhold judgment, get all the facts. And another one is brought out, I won't turn there because of time, but another uh, principle is brought out in Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness shall not rise against the man concerning any inquiry, or any sin that he commits by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And that judgment is repeated four times in the New Testament. So, again, get all the facts and do not accept the testimony of just one person. Hear both sides of the story. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let the matter be established. Another principle, important principle, is brought out here in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. 1 Corinthians 11. We are judges in training. How accurately do you judge yourself? 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. This is in the context of the Passover and how the Corinthians were abusing the Passover service. And so he says here in verse 31, Verse 30 said, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. Do you ever judge yourself? Now, I give myself, I call it uh, reward time. If I've worked hard, I will reward myself with maybe a few minutes of some kind of diversion. But do you judge yourself, discipline yourself, examine yourself, as we've exhorted us, and we normally do before the Passover, but we need to continually judge ourselves year-round. Verse 32, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So if we're judging ourselves, we would not be judged. We we emphasize that self-examination every year, but it's a continuing process. Mr. Bob Lee gave a uh, Bible study May 15th, 2013, titled Test All Things. In in my little books, I like to write down QQ, quotable quotes, 
And during his Bible study, I wrote down this QQ because I knew I was going to give a sermon on judgment. Mr. League said, quote, when you sin, your judgment gets distorted, end of quote. When you sin, your judgment gets distorted, end of quote. The Corinthians' judgment certainly was distorted. So we pray daily for forgiveness. We judge ourselves and make sure that we, if we've done something wrong, we ask God for forgiveness. We ask God for wisdom. We ask God for judgment. Let's turn to James, the third chapter, James 3. See, part of judging is wisdom, we saw in the case of King Solomon, that God gave him wisdom and understanding to judge the people and to discern between good and evil. James 3 gives us the wisdom from above, starting with verse 13. James 3, verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Verse 17, pray for this wisdom. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without hypocrisy, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So ask God for wisdom and apply the principles of making wise decisions, which means you search God's word for examples, you get the facts, you seek wise and abundant counsel, so I emphasized in the previous sermon, Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. You can't be an independent person. You need to be a part of the body of Christ and seek counsel. Make a definite decision, but follow counsel and work diligently toward the end of that time. There's a time when not to judge as well. You might just... Uh, Remember, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. Proverbs 26, verse 17. I won't turn there because we need to conclude here shortly. When should you not judge? Proverbs 26, verse 17 says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. You're going to get bit. It's none of your business. And sometimes people are super critical, and they're trying to criticize anything and everything. And God says there's a time when you shouldn't judge. Now, we need to judge the world always, because First John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father. So we must be able to judge when we see these evil acts going on in the world. We see them in the newspapers. We read about the, the exoneration of, of false incarceration of people. We see that our justice system is flawed. 
We realize God's kingdom needs to come, and God is going is training kings, priests, and judges now. We need to make wise decisions every day. We look forward to the time when God's kingdom on earth will exercise judgment, justice, and equity. In our booklet, The World Ahead, What Will It Be Like?, Dr. Meredith writes, quote, Under Christ as King of Kings, the resurrected King David will rule directly over the United House of Israel. That's Ezekiel 37, verse 24. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. That's Ezekiel 37, verse 24. Dr. Meredith concludes in the World Ahead article, Under Christ and David, Israel will again learn the way to peace, The Israelites will learn to do and obey God's statutes and judgments. We read earlier in Amos 5, verse 23, Let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. In the kingdom, in tomorrow's world, in God's government, we will administer righteous judgments. And who will judge? Do you not know the saints shall judge the world? So, brethren, we need to pray for wisdom and judgment. We need to pray every day to fulfill God's requirements in Micah 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's always strive to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem by condemning, criticizing, accusing, and misjudging. Let's avoid snap judgments, prejudgments, and limited perspectives. Let's strive to grow in the qualities of godly judgment. We read in Exodus, the 18th chapter, able, capable, competent, honest men, women, and children who fear God, men, women, and children of truth, hating covetousness. And remember 1 Corinthians 11.31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In the booklet, Restoring Original Christianity, Dr. Meredith writes, In his days the righteous shall flourish in abundance of peace under the moon until the moon is no more. The incredible sense of genuine peace and joy that will permeate the entire world When true Christianity is everyone's way of life, it's hard to imagine. In God's coming kingdom, there will be righteous judgment for every human being, and the poor will receive justice. May God help all of us willing, even now, to get back to that, to the true Christianity of the original Christians and of Jesus Christ himself. And pray for the fulfillment, brethren, of Amos 5, verse 23. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And remember Jesus' admonition for all of us. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment.